Hey everyone, I'm Andy Tratner. And I'm James Bollinger. This is Yup and Coming, an open-ended conversation with interesting young professionals about their lives and careers. We're so excited to have you along for the ride with us as we learn from our guests about the chances they've taken, the tough decisions they've made, and the great careers they're building. This episode is with Nancy Gao. Nancy has been a product manager at LinkedIn, Google, and Cloudflare. She's in the middle of finishing her MBA from Harvard Business School. And we talk in this episode about defying the expectations of becoming a doctor, what it's like to hike through the Rocky Mountains without showering, the joys of having a cat, also a trick on how to make networking more palatable, and the value and glory of childhood friends. Enjoy. I had such a great and exciting 2019 that 2020 was kind of a letdown. And I feel like people, like me included, have this need to always be doing better than they were doing before, um, better than your past self. And I think for a lot of people, 2020 was like not the best self and people didn't live um, the life that they, you know, as good of a life as they would have in 2019. Has it been the case like before that every year is kind of building? I'm only 25. So I think until this point, yes. Um, I feel like life kind of started at 18 because that's the first time, at least in my life, that I got to make an autonomous decision, which is where to go to college. Before that, I mean, everything is pretty much up to um, your like caretakers or your parents. Um, and then, yeah, from 18 to 25, every year built on each other or the, built on the previous year and every year got better, which I realize that's like a very privileged situation to be in and no major catastrophes happened or anything. But um, yeah, I feel like there's a, for like young professionals or people who walk like a traditional path, there, there's like a expectation that it, at least in this phase of your life, every year has to get better. Um, although that's probably not sustainable and I don't think this can continue forever. At some point you do like stabilize. Yeah. Do you think about that a lot? for yourself? Um, I do. Yeah. I, I think about it a lot. Um, I hate it when people tell you like, Oh, you're in the best phase of your life, or this is the best time you're in your mid twenties. The world is your oyster because, uh, what does that mean for your thirties and your forties and your fifties? Like just all downhill from here. That's not a, it's <laughs> not a good way to live. Uh, I take it. I try to take it day by day, but, um, the, the thought of like, what my 40s could look like does kind of freak me out a little bit because um yeah especially as a woman if you want to start a family that's like a consideration you have to take into account there's like a limited window of time where you can do something like that um so there's like a decent amount of planning that has to go into it and um yeah a lot of my my friends the girls I talk to uh close friends they can see themselves with a family but like the process of getting there and like having a stable job and raising kids is it's kind of terrifying yeah it's like a huge undertaking just to treat your life as a giant project that needs to go like synchronized and yeah and then that raises another question of like what happens when things don't go your way or like you, you hit a road a bump in the road and um for people who've experienced setbacks like earlier in life i think that Honestly, they might be more resilient when they get to adulthood and uh, things don't work out as planned. But for people who have just had the path laid out for them, and they've walked along it like really dutifully, just like going to college and getting a good degree, then finding a job and then doing that as best as you can, getting a promotion, making more money. Um, it's like very sequential. So if something does go wrong, I think that would be very jarring for the group of people who are like high achieving and want to do the right thing and play by the rules so is that you <laughs> yeah i think it is like <laughs> i'm not saying that i'm any different but uh i, I think that applies to me <laughs> before we really get started andy i feel like we should explain to any viewers or listeners how we how we know each other and how we met i think that's a good one yeah yeah for sure i mean happy to talk about that how andy and i met each other is kind of a it's, it's kind of a cool thing um childhood friends are so special you only get a couple of them and you can't ever get any more 
Um, so Andy and I met through the oh, so nerdy accelerated math program at Mapledale Middle School. Yeah, the memory that sticks out to me is that you were always beating me in the math Olympiad. And I'm a year older than you, and you lived not that far away from me. Like we both lived on a kind of uh, the same neighborhood and on this sort of busy street. And um, yeah, we it was like a couple of kids that would show up an hour early and do the high school algebra class. And then Mr. Schultz, who um, strongly, strong resemblance to Chuck Norris, would drive us back to the middle school when that was done. That was such a interesting, important class. Like we had uh, Mr. Sawyer was our algebra teacher, who is just a character in himself. Like he, I think, made some kind of fortune writing like supply chain software or something. And he basically could have retired, but instead chose to teach high school math. And he did like an amazing job at it. Beautiful. Thank you for the introduction. Do you want to tell us more about you, your growing up story of what you're professionally aspiring towards and then how that shifted through college and brought you to where you are today? Yeah, I think I have to start by saying that I grew up as the second child of immigrants. So my parents are from China and I have an older brother who's 11 years older than me. And my parents like um, moved to the States when my brother was four and uh, they never thought, thought that they would have a second child because of the one child policy in China. And then they came to the States and were able to have another one. So that's me. And um, that means that there was a lot of like hope and expectation on me, um, as there is for a lot of immigrant children. And I come from a medical family. Like my dad was a doctor, my grandfather, my grandmother, my brother now became a doctor, which is great because um, because he took that path, it was able to take a lot of pressure off of me because I really didn't want to do it. Or I didn't know that at the time. But um, yeah, I was brought up with the expectation that I would like follow in their footsteps and do the medical school thing. And I didn't really question it that much. That seems like the, the logical path. And I think for a lot of young kids who like math and like science, it's, it makes sense um, that a person who enjoys science would go on to get a medical degree. But um, as I got older, I started to think more seriously about like what are actually the options I have in front of me. And I realized that I'm, I'm not very well suited for, you know, to be a physician. And there are a lot of pressures and expectations on doctors that I don't think I could live up to. So, and also there were other things that I wanted to do. And for me to let go of that expectation to be a doctor was, was a big one. And it took me probably like two years to like, it's like a long drawn out breakup between me and medicine, like letting go. So when was that? That was in my freshman year of college, freshman, sophomore year of college. Um, when you sign up to uh, become a doctor and walk down that path, it's like a it's like a 10, 12 year commitment starting basically when you arrive on campus as a freshman, you have to start thinking about like taking your pre-med requirements, which eats up like 75% of your total course load, you have to take you know, four semesters of chemistry and two of physics and all of this biology. And on top of that, there's like a huge, there's an expectation that you'll do like clinical hours and volunteer and basically like scrub and polish your resume. So it's completely perfect for um, when you apply to medical schools. It's so competitive to get in and it doesn't leave a lot of breathing room for you to try other things. Uh, there are some like really ambitious uh, students, I'm sure, who are able to do like a pre-med double with something else. But um, that's really a lot. Basically, uh, my my freshman year roommate um, really loved medicine and was very passionate about it. And in the process of me comparing myself to her and like seeing what it really takes and what like how much you have to love it to pursue medicine, I realized that it just wasn't for me. And uh, that roommate now, still one of my really good friends, is in um, her last year of Harvard Medical School, and I think is going to be a fantastic physician. But I remember just sitting there as a freshman, like trying to compare myself to her and realizing I just didn't have what it takes and it wasn't for me and I didn't have the, the passion for it the way that she does. Wow. How did you end up in software? So I um, kind of fell into it, I would say. Um, I did my undergrad at UNC, University of North Carolina, and I got a full ride there, which was pretty much the reason why I chose to go to that school. I thought it would be really great for me to... Um, you know, take the burden off of my parents um, having to pay for my undergrad. And I thought at that time that I would probably go to medical school. So I envisioned that there would be like many years and many hundreds of thousands of um, tuition expenses ahead of me. So it made sense for me to take like the financially supportive option. 
Plus, um, my scholarship was super supportive and had a great community, still does um, have a really strong alumni network. And they um, actually, what's interesting about the scholarship, it's called Moorhead Kane, and they sent me on like these summer excursions that are like designed to help you build character and like see the world and develop your personhood, I suppose. So the summer before a freshman year, they sent all of us on these like five week wilderness courses that are either through Outward Bound or Knowles. And I had never done anything like that before. So I remember just like getting off the plane in Denver and I had like a 50 pound backpack and it basically crushed my weight. It's like almost half of my body weight. And I remember feeling like I was getting hazed. And, um, yeah, I would say like camping for five weeks with no shower is like type two fun. So it was like hell when I did it, but now reflecting back, it was one of the best things I ever did. I mean, I'm never going to do it again, but I'm glad that I have done it. So type two fun. (laughs) And I lost a ton of weight and, um, there wasn't very much food available. Like the other people that were on my camping excursion were like these guys that were going to play, um, that were like, you know, lacrosse athletes and some guy wanted who was going to be in the military and a football player and they ate all of our rations. So there's pretty much nothing left. And I remember I'd have these meals that were like a tortilla and then a packet of like uh, tuna and uh, peanut butter for protein. I just eat that. Wow. Yeah, that reminds me of, of camping in northern Wisconsin in middle school. I had a much shorter trip, nine day canoeing trip. And there was this French guy, Gautier. And he, uh, we had groups of four students, or yeah, whatever, middle schoolers. <laughs> this guy had never like seen peanut butter in his life, because apparently in France they just have Nutella, and that was like our main staple, right? You carry your backpack, and you yeah, you have like dried stuff, and um, he ate all the peanut butter within like day two, and so for the rest of the seven days, everyone had to just go go with that with just a tortilla for lunch or whatever. Yeah, the meals were really, really something. So breakfast every day was granola and water. So it's like cereal and milk, but granola and water, and that's fine. Oh, you didn't have milk um, pow? I'm lactose intolerant, so no milk pow for oh, me. No. That makes me so ill. And then um, the fresh rations, like fruit and vegetables, are super heavy. So you eat those first. And the first, first few days, you have like fresh salads and you can eat fruit. But then, um, you know, on week three, there's no fresh foods available. And probably the best meal and the one that we looked forward to the most was called Rom Bomb. It's um, ramen noodles with powdered mashed potatoes with Cholula on top. And you just like kind of mix it together until it becomes like a concrete, the, the texture of concrete, like a sludge. But um, if you, after just, you know, walking for like 20 miles, you eat anything and everything that you can get your hands on. And um, yeah, the guys on my, on my trip, the like big dudes, uh, were really kind of picky eaters and they wouldn't touch the canned tuna. So I would like put that on everything. Like I'd have like a slice of bread and honey and I would just put tuna on it. Amazing. Yeah. And then we, all, we all took the same flight. Um, we all got back to the airport from Denver at the same time. And I remember there was like a Panda Express next to a Chick-fil-A next to like a pizza hut. And we all just gorged ourselves and felt, you know, that we earned it after five weeks. <laughs> yeah. That's so long. But this is all in Colorado. Yeah, this is in the Rocky Mountains. Okay, so I would love, this is a great story. Thank you. You're an amazing storyteller. And I'm sure we're going to get many more. But um, the original question, just to bring us up to speed on like your life logistics, on your professional identity was falling into software. Yes. Oh, right. So I um, fell out of medicine and I fell into software. And um, professionally, so um, I did my undergrad at UNC. And then Um, after graduating from school, my goal and my dream was to move to the West Coast. So I did. And uh, the path that took me there was that I had started in software engineering, and I had done some internships in that. And um, I found out that it really wasn't for me. I mean, I enjoyed it, and I was capable of doing it, but it wasn't my, um, I think, my final destination, so to speak. Actually, in one of my software internships, I became really good friends with the product manager of my team, of that software team he seemed like he had a really interesting job. Like I remember that he got to like do design sprints, you know, when you walk into a conference room and there's like sticky notes all over the wall and that seemed cool. And he got to talk to like the people on the business side and he knew everyone in the company, it seemed, and had like a sense of what was going on, like beyond just writing code. So I remember like thinking like, Hey, that guy, seems like he has a really fascinating role. 
And he gave me some really good advice, which is like, you have, at that time I was a sophomore. So he said, um, for your junior year internship, you should try being a product manager. And if you like it, um, you can pursue it. And if it's not a fit, like go back to software. And I was like, hmm, that's a really good idea. And then um, when I got to my junior year, I remember like really hustling to try to find a product internship. They're kind of rare. It's kind of a chicken and egg pro- problem in products. Like you can't get a product job unless you've had prior experience, but no one wants to give you prior, you know, the experience unless you have had a role before. So I, I think I remember having to hustle kind of hard to get a product, you know, internship, which ended up getting one at LinkedIn uh, was a really great experience. And I liked it a lot. Um, so that following year, when I came back to UNC, I was like pretty dead set that I was going to look for a full-time role in product. And uh, I ended up finding one at Google through the APM program. So um, that's a two-year rotational where you spend one year working on an assigned rotation inside Google on one of the consumer, usually a consumer product, but there are other ones. And then for your second rotation, you get to choose what you want to work on. And in the middle, you take this uh, amazing extravagant trip to four cities across the globe to... um, learn and understand how other countries uh, use consumer products and how they build software, uh, meeting, you know, startup founders and seeing companies and how they run. Um, yeah. And that kind of leads me towards the present day. Right now I'm in uh, my second year of my MBA at Harvard Business School. And I am really glad that I went back to grad school. It is something that I've always wanted to do. It doesn't really, um, it's not really necessary, I think, to have a successful career in technology, but uh, in terms of just like broadening horizons and learning how business works, it's something that I had wanted to do. So I'm in my second year now. Can you talk about, it sounds like these first couple internships were very formative. Um, like first getting experience in software, um, I think that's typically helpful if you want to go into product, but then your personal journey to hustle and kind of change before you actually had to leave college to set yourself up for the right, like full-time role. Um, Can you like talk in more detail about how you actually got those first internships, maybe your first software internship and and this first product internship, like what did hustling mean? And um, yeah, how do you crack the chicken and egg in, in either discipline? I remember having a lot of imposter syndrome, which I still do, but I had it way more back then because I wasn't at a target school and I had pretty much uh, spent my freshman year kind of like floating around inside UNC thinking about taking pre-med classes and knocking out some gen eds. But I wasn't one of those kids who um, was writing code from the age of five. I didn't have like a really strong foundation of software engineering. So I was in the basically like 101 equivalent class as a sophomore and then taking the object-oriented programming class this the semester after, like the spring semester, simultaneously while trying to look for an internship. So basically um, knew nothing and knew almost nobody and was trying to like get my get my foot in the door. And I remember my friend and I had visited San Francisco, uh, which is the place that we both wanted to move to um, during the winter break between um, – sophomore fall and spring and we just like printed out paper resumes and gave them out like we would just walk around soma and give people resumes which seems like a ridiculous thing to do and it was at the time as well but we were so desperate and didn't know how to look for a job and didn't understand how to like reach out to a network we didn't have a network so i can really empathize with um any people out there who feel like they want to get into an industry that's tough to crack i mean it's really daunting and you feel um kind of hopeless at times if you don't have a connection or an in or have a solid foundation somewhere. So I ended up getting my internship through a connection through my scholarship. Um, And basically they were, I feel like it was kind of a charity case. Like they took a chance on me. I didn't have a lot of experience and they gave me a role. It was very nice of them. And um, I do feel that, feel that like a lot of good opportunities come through things like that. Um, Not from applying online or doing resume drop, but really just by um, knowing someone who already has like a, like a network and can help you out. So that was, I was really fortunate to get that internship at GoDaddy and it was really formative for me because that's where I met the product manager who told me about the role and explained what it meant. I had no 
idea what product management was. And now it's kind of in the cultural conversation. But back then, this is like 2014. It wasn't really being talked about that much. So it was, uh, I would say, very like fortuitous that I found it at the time that I did. How did you um, like navigate your scholarship grapevine to like take advantage of it? And so it sounds like you wouldn't recommend people walking around with resumes anymore. I don't recommend walking around with resumes anymore, but this for software, software, (laughs) maybe for other things, it could still work. But people looked at us like we were crazy. I remember there was this company called Yes to Carrots, and I think they make like lotion and other body products, but they had this office in San Francisco and their logo is like a carrot. And we were like, my friend and I looked at each other and we're like, yes, to carrots. And then we both brought our resumes and like put them under the door and got no replies. <laughs> I think getting an internship is really tricky. It requires someone to basically do you a favor uh, with no expectation of getting anything in return. It's really out of the goodness of their hearts. That's like the challenge of the first internship. So finding like sympathetic alumni of your school or anyone that you have like met, even at a conference or at a meetup or any event, um, I think like reaching out to people cold through email or like however you can get in contact with them, you know, DM them on Twitter, whatever. That is probably the way to go. But I, I think it's hard. The first internship is definitely the hardest one. What did you do? Like you found your alumni list and started messaging people for advice, or did you ask for internship directly? Oh, I think what I did was um, search the alumni directory for people that were in the Bay Area, because I knew that there would be a high concentration of people in tech that were alumni of my school in that area. And um, I probably went into the search engine and typed like software or like technology. And I emailed like a bunch of people and one of them hit. So use your alumni directory. And I, I think there are actually services at a lot of schools. Um, alumni development is like a big part of any institution. So um, getting in touch with those folks is probably helpful. They probably know who the big donors are and what they work on. So, And so then with that experience, I guess you now had somewhat of a network and you had a better direction and kind of a, a reason. Um, it's not just like begging, like give me a, any job. It's you kind of like, I want a product job to learn about this role. How was the hustling for that? Hustling for that was also challenging. Um, So having one software internship under my belt was definitely a check. Like that was a plus. But um, pivoting from product into software is always tough because there are fewer product roles than there are engineering roles just kind of by nature. So most product managers will oversee an engineering team or work or partner with a team of like five to ten. So five engineers is probably one product role. Um, I found this product job through... um, a guy that I had met in a science camp, very nerdy, when I was in high school. So after junior year of high school, I had gone to London um, because I had won some kind of science fair competition that gave us this trip to London. And I met a lot of students from around the world at this thing. And I met this guy who um, actually gave me a lot of really good advice. So I should probably reach back out to him and give him a shout out. Thanks, Edgar. You really uh, did me a solid there. Uh, because he had told me about this other science camp that um, was for rising freshmen in college to go to Israel for like a month, um, sponsored by the government. And you do research. It was kind of like a dual thing. You do research. And then on the weekend, you get to see Israel, which is a fascinating country. Like they took us to the Dead Sea and the desert. And we saw old Jerusalem and everything. Um, So Edgar told me about um, this like science program, I guess, science fair network thing. And he uh, was an internship at LinkedIn as a software engineer when he was um, a student. So he was like one year older than me. He was able to pass on all this information. And um, yeah, he was a, he went to Princeton. So it was like a really well-known target school. And I asked him to connect me to the recruiter uh, that managed the internship program at LinkedIn. And um, yeah, he did that for me, which is like so cool that he just like emailed him, emailed that recruiter directly and attached my resume and I got that response back. Also very fortuitous. Like I hadn't thought about this in a while, actually, until you brought it up. But I was hustling really hard at that time. I mean, I got my I got rejected from a bunch of companies. I remember really wanting to work at Palantir at the time was a very hot in 
a hot company in 2014. And I went to New York and I studied really, really hard for this interview and I got rejected. And I remember, I, I think I interviewed for the Google APM programs internship as well and like didn't get that. And I did software and, you know, engineering internship, like interviews, which are nerve wracking and horrible. Yeah, I haven't done one in several years, but they're difficult. I mean, they're, they're live coding interviews and sometimes they compile what you've written. And uh, if it doesn't compile, it's like a horrible feeling. So there's quite a lot of studying that you do for those. And I remember I interviewed at Microsoft and I was like looking at startups and I'd basically attend every like career fair or like a hackathon that I could get to because I knew that there would be um, recruiters and employees there to help. And I mean, I, w- I was hustling. I haven't hustled in a while, but at that time I, I was hustling. <laughs> um, yeah, those first few jobs was really about using friends and family or people that you met one time at science camp like three years ago and see if they are willing to help you. And sometimes they, they're able to come through. And I will say that I always try to pass it on because I got so lucky in those first few like encounters that when high school or college kids um, find me on LinkedIn or get my number or my email, somehow I always try to respond and help them out if I can. Try to pay it forward. <laughs> How was getting the first full-time? Getting the first full-time job was not as hard. I feel like it got incrementally easier each time I searched. And now that I am in my mid-20s and have been working kind of comfortably in the tech space for a while, I don't think that finding a job is nearly nearly as hard as it was um, to find that first software internship. Now, if I were to switch industries, I'd probably be starting over from zero. But um, I think every step gets incrementally easier because, A, you know, um, what you're looking for and how to go about looking for it. And B, you actually have something to offer. So it's not like you go to someone to ask them to do you a favor. I mean, it's a mutual exchange of your skills um, for their employment. So it's more of a, a match in that way. Um, so after my internship at LinkedIn, which is a fantastic experience that I really learned so much in and had a really great relationship with my manager there. And she taught me so many things. Um, finding a full-time job was relatively easier because I understood the like the lingo and the jargon of the tech world, and I had some experience to draw on. I mean, it's not as if you really accomplish much in a three-month internship, but you're able to do something like enough to where it it gives you something to anchor on, something to talk about, and something to write on your resume. Um, so finding a full-time job was not as hard. I applied to all the big companies and applied to some startups, and um, I actually had a return offer from LinkedIn that I use that gave me a lot of psychological safety that I knew I would have something at least. Um, Yeah. So I applied on the Google APM internship. Um, I think I also got a referral from that one. Um, So referrals are really clutch. They make sure, help you ensure that like your resume is actually seen by someone instead of like disappearing into the void of the resume drop. So. Yeah. And then nowadays, I guess, do you, to what extent do you think about like cultivating? I mean, you worked at LinkedIn. Do you, uh, do you keep your LinkedIn up to date and like um, track, you know, what's going on the resume? What's my project currently? And like, how does it look to other people? Or is that not as much of a consideration anymore? Or was it ever? I do love the product and I think it's extremely useful. Um, not really to market myself, but also, but more just to like keep tap, like just to know what my friends and people that I've met in the past are like up to. Cause I think it's really cool. Um, to see like how their careers have progressed or if they started a company, like how did that go? Or if they switch industries, I kind of just, I'm curious. Um, I don't really keep my own LinkedIn that up to date just because I know that my next job will likely come from someone in my network or someone that I know, like reaching out or me reaching out directly. And it's unlikely to be like um, from a cold email. Like, so I think more important than keeping my profile up to date, I try to keep in touch with people um, just to know what they're up to. And if, you know, there's an opportunity that comes up or an area where I could help them or make an introduction, I try to do that. But I love LinkedIn. I think it's a great product and um, really useful when you're meeting someone new to just look them up on LinkedIn, just so you have a sense of like where they're from geographically or like where they went to school or even like what they're interested in. You can, you can learn a lot about someone from looking at their profile. So. Can you describe more about like what um, what your job kind of looks like today, or how how you've evolved in thinking of the day to day responsibilities of like what is a a product person? 
Yeah, so I've worked at four different places um, as a product manager. Um, one is my when I was an intern at LinkedIn, and I worked on ML products for personalization there. And then um, after graduating from school, I worked at YouTube um, as a product manager on the main app, so the flagship um, facing you know desktop, the mobile apps, and mobile web, or like the main app. Um, I also worked uh, after that for my second rotation, I was on Google Chrome, Chrome Android. So I worked on Android for uh, NBU, which is next billion users. So focusing on the developing world, building um, Android products for like low end devices and for new internet users. Um, I started, I did my first year of my MBA and ended up dropping out of it because of uh, the coronavirus pandemic. And now I'm a product manager at Cloudflare, which is um, a CDN and security company that is enterprise. It's the first time I've worked at an enterprise place. Um, and in all four roles, I would say that like the subject matter is different, but the day-to-day responsibilities and what you do is kind of the same. So in every situation, the product manager uh, will pair with a group of engineers. I've worked on teams as small as three and as big as 30. Um, and the dynamics can definitely differ, but your day-to-day is really like in three phases. You help um, identify and define like what the team should work on next. You help them um, execute on what they're doing right now. So like uh, help them like unblock, you know, cross or, you know, issues or troubleshoot different things or generally just try to be helpful. And then the third phase is like launch. So getting your products ready to go to market, um, thinking about the launch calendar, ramp up, marketing, um, QA, all that stuff. So it's like planning, execution, and launch are like the three things that are always kind of running. Cool. Um, yeah, what, what have been your favorite parts of the, of the job or like what's an ideal day um, or project and what's been hardest maybe? Um, um, the coolest part of the job is definitely the people. Getting to meet all different types of people from the engineers you work with really closely to the design designer that you get to pair with to build like beautiful UIs. Um, you get to talk to a lot of customers or users. So uh, for Cloudflare, we talk to people who, um, you know, use the service and our customers. But um, at Google, like everyone pretty much around the world is your user. So we did a lot of user testing there. So it's really fun to do interviews with them. Um, and then also just like the cross-functional people inside the company, you get to talk and learn about like, you know, legal tech or tech marketing or, you know, all these different functions of the business. And that's my favorite part of it because it's just so diverse. Like every day you talk to someone different with a different perspective. Uh, definitely the hardest part about being a product manager is um, true for any large organization or any general manager role, which being a PM is kind of a general manager role. It's just like working in teams and getting them aligned towards one single goal is like the biggest challenge of any organization. And that's, it doesn't matter if it's tech, it doesn't matter if it's like a hospital or a school or a, you know, research facility, those all groups, large groups of people um, face that same challenge. And for you, that's also been, that's like a structural challenge. It's also been the most like personally challenging and frustrating for you. Um, I wouldn't say like it, it's a source of personal frustration, but it is like um, a area where you have to invest the most time um, in large organizations. And it takes large groups of people to get you know big accomplish big goals. But like the communication overhead and the number of meetings and um, communicating and over communicating and communicating again. It's probably what I spend most of the day on. So it's not so much a source of frustration, just like an area that probably takes, you know, at least half of your time. So it's a general manager role that is in the tech industry, but the day-to-day function is like the same as a general manager at like, you know, a consumer goods company or any other like traditional company. So your main job is to um, be the uh, sort of like overseer or the point person between a lot of different functions. So what, what can be challenging for some people is that you're not the expert in anything. So in my day-to-day role, like I definitely do not know the tech stack as well as the engineers. And I definitely don't know the designs, the ins and outs of the user patterns as well as, as the designer. And I know less about legal than the lawyer. And I know less about marketing than the marketing person. But overall, as the product person, you do have the most context, broadly speaking. Um, so you're the, pretty much the only person who knows what's going on 
um, at a high level, but in the details, you are like really not that useful. So one of the challenges is being able to communicate and understand well enough or like knowing when you need to drill into the details and when it's okay to have a, you know, 10,000 foot view and being able to communicate across all these different things um, effectively enough, given that you're not the expert in any one thing. How have you kind of developed the ability to do this? Well, I think it's like a little bit of faking it until you make it and then a little bit of learning by doing and learning what works. So what I've learned works is asking questions is king um, because uh, you'll never know what you don't know if you don't if you don't ask. Um, I never uh, try to speak authoritatively on topics I don't understand. I will usually defer to the expert or pull them in if I can by just, you know, including them in the meeting or CCing them on the email and asking for their input. Uh, So don't talk about things you don't know, ask a lot of questions. And the third is probably just do as much listening as you can, um, because that's where you'll glean a lot of, you know, useful information by letting others speak and letting um, their voices be heard um, while you synthesize what's happening and try to put the pieces together. Thank you. This has been an incredibly detailed uh, breakdown. Maybe we we can shift gears a little. What have been the biggest challenges for you moving from college to work? One of the things that I've noticed about life after college is that um, it takes more effort and work to keep your personal life going after graduation, not necessarily in a bad way, just in a phase of life kind of way. Um, In college, you know, everyone is geographically in the same place, doing the same thing, taking classes. Even if you're a different major, you're pretty much going through the same motions. And it's basically no work to hang out with people because they either like live in your building or down the street or like not that far away. And even if you don't make plans with them, you know where to find them. Like they're either in the library or like at my school that you you know that people would be at this certain bar on that, on that night and you could see them there. Um, in the real world, that isn't the case. Like your friends probably have moved all around the country, if not the world, like now you're in Ecuador. So if I want to see you, it, it takes a little bit of extra planning to make the call happen or, I'd love to come visit you in Ecuador and that, you know, takes effort as well, which is totally worth it, but it's just a different level of interaction than you're in as, you know, compared to when you're in college. So, I think what that has meant for me is that like I have fewer friends, but I invest more time and effort into them. Um, I'm kind of sad to have lost touch with some of the folks that I wasn't as close to, but for the ones that have stayed, um, like I, I think I like value them more or I treasure them more because you know, they're aren't that many of them compared to when I was in college and it takes more of our time and effort to stay in touch and see each other. So in a way, those relationships became more meaningful. MBA is a great way to kind of relive those twenties because you get a taste of what it's like to be in college. I mean, when you're an MBA, all of your friends like live on campus or live near campus and are doing the same things and you know where you can find them. It's really easy to hang out. So I'm glad I'm really glad that I went back and I'm looking forward to someday finishing my final year because I will probably be the last school experience I'm ever going to have. And um, yeah, I mean, it's harder to make friends as like as you get older. Either people aren't as open to it or people get busier. Like once people start having kids and getting married, it's just like harder to hang. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that we have to like be more intentional and put more effort into the people we really want to see. Maybe, yeah, do you want to talk about the decision to go go do the MBA? I think I remember there was quite a bit of debating uh, as to like, if this is the right decision, is this the right timing? Do I really want to leave? You know, this company is paying me quite well. Yeah, I remember consulting you actually about this all the time. Like we, one of my like favorite memories is when we went to, was it Angel Island? We, we took a ferry to go somewhere. Yeah, Tiburon, Angel Island, walked around. Yeah, so um, right before I was making that decision, I we, we did that trip. I'm really glad we did that. Um, yeah, I agonized over this decision a lot. And now looking back, like it's kind of a no-brainer. And I'm glad that I went and I have no regrets. I think at that time, I, I was like two years into working and I didn't have that much professional experience. So I felt like I was still learning a lot. Um, and I was also kind of afraid of change. And so I agonized this decision. But honestly, like, people regret the things that they didn't do. And I think that if I didn't go get my MBA, I would regret that later on. Um, Was there something that pushed you over the edge? 
in your decision making or s- stuff that held you back that now you think is like wrong beliefs? Um, yeah, the the thing that held me back was fear of change. It's like a personality flaw that I know that I have. <laughs> Things that push me over the edge is having immigrant parents who really wanted me to go to graduate go to graduate school, especially Harvard, you know, immigrant parents love that. And I'm glad I did that for them. And um, now that I am halfway through the program, I'm realizing that we have like 30 years to work and only so many years to explore and like be in school and be a student. Taking time for yourself and to explore things you want to do, I think is worth it if you have the means to do so. Uh, There will always be another job that you can. Yeah. So you applied first, you like got in and then decided if you were going to go. Oh, I actually, I, I forgot to mention this. I applied for the 2 plus 2 program while I was a senior in college. The senior year kind of went like this. I was coming out of LinkedIn. I looked for a job and found one at Google, I think by like September or October. And then senioritis hit and I was just enjoying my best life. I had turned 21. I was at this great apartment, was living with friends. I got to travel a little bit and see the world. Um, and as senior year was coming to a close, I realized like, I like school and I like the school environment. And, um, yeah, so I applied for two plus two at Stanford and Harvard because I didn't want school to end. I didn't think that I would get a PhD or get a master's in computer science. So an MBA seemed like the next logical thing to do. And that gave me a lot of peace of mind and flexibility because you can go anywhere from two years out to four years out after graduating. Like you work for a few years, get some experience and then go back to school. And for any seniors out there, like I would highly recommend it um, because it just keeps the doors open and it's easier to take like the GMAT or the GRE while you're a student and you haven't forgotten like how to do math. So what do you, what do you think sets you apart um, maybe from other folks who, you know, want to go to Google and like, maybe have a couple internships or, or at least trying, you know, or, or trying to get into Harvard. Like, is there something, um, I mean, especially given that you mentioned your background was coming from not, you know, coding since you were 10 years old kind of thing. Are there traits or ways you kind of are able to weave the story backwards when you're applying to these things or? Yeah, I mean, there's always a lot of weaving the story backwards. Like now that I'm saying it to you, Andy, it sounds so cohesive. But in the moment, I felt super lost and had tons of imposter syndrome. And to this day, like, don't really, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. But from the outside, it might, people have told me that I seem like I know what's going on. And I think like, um, not being afraid to put yourself out there and talk to people that you haven't met before, or to reach out to someone who is a friend of a friend or a connection of a connection of someone you met one time, um, goes a long way. And in order to be able to do that, you need to not have a fear of rejection because the rejection comes at every turn, basically. You know, emails go unanswered, or people tell you they're not interested, or, you know, for whatever reason, it doesn't work out. And like being able to just move past that and not take it personally um, is a helpful trait, I think. Maybe that's a, there's like a parallel to dating there, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Anything that's a funnel, it's a numbers game, right? Like, it is a funnel. It's totally a funnel. <laughs> Do you want to, can you share more about, um, how did you realize that you had a fear of change? Yeah, I think like one thing I've noticed about myself is that I hate the end of anything. Like I get really anxious around the end of a trip or like at the end of college. And I hate saying goodbye to people because it feels final and it feels like that door is closing. So I actually, you know, don't like to formalize a goodbye. You know, if I, um leaving school or like throwing a goodbye party or attending a goodbye party I don't I don't like the feeling around the feeling of finality it like hurts me and I think it's because I don't like to feel that things are ending especially if it's like a special chapter like a good moment in your life I don't like to feel like it's over um I don't have any conclusions or like things I can do about this I just know that this is something that's totally natural I mean humans are very loss averse yes I'm very loss averse that's a good way of putting it because um, everyone is yeah like you know going from school I knew that there were going to be that school was probably going to be an interesting and fulfilling experience but I was in a good place in my job at the time and I had a good group of friends and I didn't want to leave all of that behind so yeah I 
loss aversion. That's exactly what it is. But if you're loss averse, then you'll never take risks. And if you never take risks, you'll never reap rewards. So How, do you have any tricks for yourself to like overcome this, like to push yourself out the door to that networking event or like when you know you should, maybe you should do something for your future self, but in the moment you don't want to. Um, and maybe you attribute it to like these um, like fears or whatever. Yeah, I guess uh, two things. First is like, I do not like, and most people don't like the term networking, and it actually is really uncomfortable to physically like go into a situation knowing that your intention is to network there. So I try to never do that. And aside from the first job at GoDaddy where I knew nobody, I actually haven't really done that much network searching. Uh, for the most part, I just try to meet as many people as possible and get to know them, generally speaking, and just try to like understand what they're about and like why they like to do what they do. And it doesn't even have to be in tech, but if you treat it more as just like a relationship or a human relationship, it doesn't feel as icky as if it's networking. So um, actually don't do a lot of quote networking, but try to meet as many people as possible in different situations. Um, that hasn't been the case during COVID, but I'm looking forward to meeting new people maybe next year, or like later this year. Um, and the second thing that I just remembered is that like, if you feel ever feel like a situation isn't working for you, whether it's a job or a relationship or a friendship or anything, it's better to just cut that um, as soon as you're sure and like walk away as soon as you know that you want to. Um, because nobody really like reflects back on a bad job or a bad relationship and wishes that they had stayed longer. People usually regret staying too long. Um, and especially for jobs, I mean, most of our employment is like at will. And you can be fairly certain that if the company felt like they weren't happy with you, like they would fire you, right? So um, don't feel like you owe them anything. <laughs> if Once you feel like you're ready to go, just head on out there. You've talked about a couple of mentors. Are there others that maybe we haven't mentioned that have played like a critical role or maybe books that uh, were formative for you? Yeah, I, I feel like mentor is such a, is such a, he, like a heavy loaded word because it implies like some level of guidance that you're supposed to get from like one person. But I feel like guidance is kind of everywhere. And there are like aspects of different people that I work with that I really admire and I want to be like them in that regard. But like, I don't want their life or I don't want to be like them in every single way. And there's, you know, friends or like girlfriends or even people I've dated who have like characteristics that I admire and look up to. And I try to emulate them in that way. Um, and same with like public figures. There's like a couple writers that I really, really enjoy that I go back to. Um, well, I love Ben Thompson from Chitechery. I try to read that newsletter. I subscribe to it to try to stay on top of things. And there's this guy who writes a blog. His name is Cal Newport that I really enjoy. And he writes about deep work and how to focus. And that's, uh, I've been reading that off and on for a really long time. Um, and yeah, different books and writers that I like, but there isn't like one person who I have a consistent relationship with to like push my career forward or really help me out in that way. Um, maybe that's like an area where I'm lacking and maybe I need to like go find a mentor. But then again, like finding a mentor sounds so loaded and so difficult. And like, I feel like that orphaned chick who's like, you know, like baby chicken is like, will you be my mentor? Like, I, I don't know. It seems difficult to find a good one. But really like inspiration is everywhere. This is a great answer to the question. And it's a little unique, I think, because um, some people will try to like pull on individuals, but I, I love your answer. Uh, I felt that way in chess, like often to get to like a certain level, people think you need a coach or something. But really, if you just like read enough and like look at enough different pieces of the puzzle, and then you are continuing to just act and get your own experiences to kind of reinforce or validate other models of the world that you encounter. Um, you don't really need like a formal coach, in my opinion. Yeah, right. And you go you can go to different people to different things. Like, for example, like when I go through big changes in life, I know I can just call you. <laughs> because like, where I'm afraid of changing and, you know, leaving something. I know this is not an area where you struggle, you are really good about moving on and like, 
letting things go in a way. So in those situations in life, I'll call you. And there are other situations that I call different people. So I don't know if I, I would call you my mentor, but I do like seek you out for, for certain things. Do you have um, any specific um, priority management or time management frameworks that you like, either for yourself or professionally? No, I don't like those frameworks. I like to take every day as it comes. And I'm not a planner and I'm not a scheduler. And I just like to do things um, when I feel like doing them. Uh, uh, and maybe that's a flaw because I'm not as organized as other people. But um, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a micromanager or a micro planner. And I think that it would introduce like too many systems and frameworks, I think is counterproductive. You know, you ever meet those people who are just so hyper-optimized in every aspect of their life and they're so obsessed with self-improvement and measurement and metrics that's like, oh my God, how, like, when do you have time to just live? Yeah, and maybe it works for them, so I don't want to judge too much. It probably works really well for some people, but um, yeah, I know this about myself. I'm not a scheduler and I'm not a planner, and I actually, like, don't spend a lot of time trying to focus and improve on the things that I'm not good at because I think it's kind of, like, futile. Oh, that's fascinating. Where did you first encounter this or like discover for yourself? What experience reinforced that concept of doubling down on the strengths? Well, you know how like you meet people, especially in big cities and especially in tech who are really focused on just like, well, optimization and also self-improvement. They're always optimizing and improving themselves, which is a worthy and noble goal. But to the extreme, I think it's not good. And you can spend all expend a lot of effort on things that are your weaknesses that you're not very good at and still might not make that much progress on them. And really, I think we are better served to just like recognize and accept the things that we're not good at and focus on the things that we are. Um, or at least that's how I've chosen to look at things. So, Do you feel you have pretty good self-awareness? Are there any unknown unknowns? Or maybe could you enumerate some of these uh, strengths and weaknesses that you perceive for yourself? For sure. So I don't know. I, well, I, there are probably lots of unknown unknowns. So I, I think my awareness is all right, but it can always be improved. Or I will probably learn more things about myself as I get older. Uh, for example, like planning is not really my strength. I'm not very good at like detail oriented work, I would say. Um, and where I am good is I'm really good at working on teams. I'm good at communication and setting direction for group, groups of people. So I'm really good at working with people or I would like to say, I'd like to think that that is where I am, am you know, most productive. So I don't, I seek out jobs or tasks that I know that I'm not well suited for. One of them I think is like writing code. I am at one point was proficient and capable of it, but I know that like in my day job, it would not be productive for me to, you know, make a PR or to make a, a code change because the time that I would spend on it um, is much greater than what another person who works on it full time would spend on it. And in the end, it wouldn't be very productive. Like you can't really be a part-time software engineer, really. So I just try to do my day job, which is being a product manager to the best that I can. And I don't like step out of my lane, so to speak. Yeah. Do you have um, any particular... Uh, thoughts or like what would make some what you think might make someone more suited towards these like larger company environments where specialization is more possible versus I guess I've worked on like some small teams that people have to just do do a lot of different things. Um, I guess I'm in specifically in in the kind of roles that are demanding some some last mile coding, some customer relationship, like a, a mix of things. Um, I guess it's to me it seems like very luxurious to have. Uh, to be able to just say, no, like, these are my responsibilities, <laughs> you know, other people will do the rest. That's a good point. I suppose if I were at a smaller company, I'd have to step out of my role and do more hats. But in a big company, because you spend so much time managing communication overhead, and like, there's no substitute for it, like, you really just have to talk to people and say the same thing to a lot of different people with slightly different spin to get the message across that, like, I don't think it's a good use of like my time to spend like one day a week writing code because that would take away 20% of the time that I really should be spending like on communicating to people or, you know, on chat, in meetings, writing docs, things that help get our vision across. 
I imagine in a different company environment, those needs are going to be different. Like in a smaller team, there's less communication overhead. So you don't have to like spend so much time on meetings or in chat in docs. Um, yeah, I guess my example is kind of a function of the role that I'm in currently, but I guess I can give an example for my personal life. Like one thing that I know I'm really good at is um, I, I really love bringing people together in kind of like loose ways. Like I love getting a group of five or six friends together and get them excited about going to a place or going on a trip. And I will like corral all the people to, you know, get excited and want to go with me. Then when it comes down to planning the details, I usually like to like get help from others in terms of like booking the house and finding the car and figuring out like expense splitting. Like that's not my favorite thing to do. Um, but I'll usually like, if I'm planning a trip with friends, like I will be the one to suggest it and try to get people excited and then I'll delegate. All right. Like, can you help me book the cars? Like, can you help us do a split wise and handle it that way? Damn. That's awesome. I suck at delegation. I take too much upon myself. How do you delegate effectively? I have to delegate because I just, I can't, I can't manage all these details. It's, I just, they don't fit in my brain. I'm not good at it. I don't like to drop the ball. So I just pass the ball to someone else, you know? <laughs> yeah. Do you see hangups with other people? Maybe friends who are trying to plan trips who don't know how to delegate as well as you or like aren't as forced to by their personality. What, what do you think stops people from doing this as effectively as you do it? Because it sounds like you're quite good at it. Oh, well, I guess it's, uh, part of it is about having people that you trust. Like there's a couple of people that I know really good at managing expenses or can I know they'll handle the meals or I, they'll do something. So having a group of people that you can count on is really important. And also just like not sweating it too much because I feel like there's a lot of pressure and expectation when you like plan a party or plan a trip that it has to go really well. But if there's a hiccup, I feel like people, people are like usually get over it. Like things don't always go as expected. Yeah. Those are great insights. Understand the people you're working with and have a good relationship and um, stop being a perfectionist. Do you have uh, any big regrets? I try not to have regrets. Um, there are definitely things I think I situations with people that I definitely could have handled better. But I try not to live with regrets because uh, it's not that productive and it doesn't feel good and it doesn't serve you. And um, B, just because you wouldn't be where you are today if you had not taken any of the major turns that you took at that time. So um, who's to say that, I don't know, I would be a different person if I had gone down a different path. So, um, Okay, maybe the follow-up question. How did you come to this enlightened view? Is it enlightened? I just think like I definitely fall into like negative mental traps, especially when I'm feeling low or feeling down. But um, logically, I know that it's it's not helpful and it's not um, bringing good energy into your life to dwell on the things that you screwed up on or the things that you wish you could have done differently because you can't change them now. And um yeah, I would say like the biggest regrets in my life are not career oriented, but they're like situations that I feel like I didn't handle well with other people. And um, yeah, I apologized for them, tried to move on, um, learned not to ever do things like that again. But yeah, there's no, really no turning back the clock. So don't live with, regret, with regrets. Who is someone you would want to have lunch with? Famous person. Jesus Christ. Okay, I don't like my answers to these, Andy. Let's not conclude this section. <laughs> I like the parts where we're conversing, though. So you should keep some of the, the parts where you're speaking. I guess I am confabulating memories that don't probably don't exist in my head, but I just remember like just you and me in a vehicle. <laughs> this is going to be the podcast. <laughs> oh, my God. This cat. I actually fostered him from, so he's from Shasta, Lake Shasta in California, which is where the fires were. So he was like a fire rescue cat. And uh, he has like a little burn on his ear from, from that time. 
and I, I fostered him, uh, just planning to take care of him for a little while. I was fostering for the um, Oakland Humane Society, and I found this cat through a different organization. But he's so sweet that I decided to keep him. He, like, will play fetch, and he sits on my lap, and he um, taps me to, like, wake me up in the morning when it's time to be fed. He's really cute. Yeah, we have, we, we get along great. 